Okay. Hi, everyone, and welcome Hello. to the Lit Must Fall reading group. Um, the book that we're looking at this week is Jane Eyre. I, um, I actually read the book for the first time very recently. I was reading a book of essays by Adrian Rich, and I think it's called, uh, it's called On Lies, Secrets, and Silence. Sorry, it was behind me. It's called On Lies, Secrets, and Silence. It's a really good collection of essays. And one of her essays is about um, Jane Eyre. So I came across this essay. I'll send it to you guys. Amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I read the book after reading that essay and I told Sumaya, oh, like I'm reading Jane Eyre. And it was as if I'd like met like a, fr like a best friend of hers. <laughs> like it became very serious. Like every day we'd speak about these characters as if they were real people. Um, but if we begin with uh, Gates Head, maybe. And her, the thing that stands out as is like injustice and her noticing and her reaction to this injustice. And I don't know what people think. It's actually quite multi-layered, her, uh, her response to this injustice. Um, can, can I start? I, I think for me, it's like Jane Eyre is like the emblematic orphaned story where it starts and you immediately deeply sympathize because this this child has no one that's one tragedy but then there's this unbelievable added tragedy of the family which are just unbelievably cruel unimaginably cruel but that abandonment somehow makes her into this incredibly strong naive but incredibly strong figure of resistance. And she's just like so sassy, <laughs> like telling, you know, at one point she tells her aunt, who is so cruel, you know, she, I think her aunt accuses her of being a liar in front of um, her future, like teacher principal. And she's like, I don't love you. <laughs> and it's like the idea of like a nine or 10 year old telling an adult, I don't even love you. Like I'm leaving and I'm going to tell everyone exactly what you did to me. So powerful. And I think that's part of why I really strongly identify with her and why I think my 16-year-old self identified with that sense of being alone in the world, but then at the same time really drawing strength from that. But yeah, that's what I would say. At the same time, I have to say that minute where, that moment where she addresses her aunt, she does say, like, my tongue took control of my... You know, we have to remember that. And also the other thing is she does... I've, there are several moments in this early uh, narrative where she says, uh, actually, like, they didn't like me because I was ugly, like, right? Like, she, she kind of, like, justifies their dislike of her. What do you think? I feel like she says also that it's not just that she's ugly, uh, but also that she is unchildlike. That's the excuse she keeps giving Mrs. Reed. That, okay, of course I was an unnerving child. Um, I wasn't a typical child. I wasn't what she would want a child to be. And that's both in appearance and in character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, Dara, I think a lot of it, if we bring gender into this as well, I mean, it's, there are so many layers, aren't there, as to why she is not pleasing Um and uh, I really feel like there's an othering going on that's related to class um, and all the kind of ugliness that she represents to uh, the family. 
but I think that idea of her she's not a she's not pretty which we've already touched on but she's also too passionate right um and I, I think that not playing into the um perceived idea of what a young female child should behave like is also a major part of why that there, there, there are those altercations so when I was um I think when I read it I felt like this was a really familiar character, this female. Um, and partly because I think it was often based on the writers themselves. But I'm, I think I could think of all these other books I read as well, which I'd read earlier, which are maybe for younger um, girls. And I don't know if any of you can think of any more, but I'm thinking of like, what was it, The Little Princess or The Secret Garden or Anna Green Gables. But that orphan who is like, you know, kind of wretched and has been treated really badly and, and really suffered, but has this kind of spirit and is bookish as well and has this strong imagination. Um, so I feel like there's a reason why, um, you know, you la I latched on to that character because it was yeah. just such a familiar trope. Isn't it also just the fact that you're a bookish person because you're reading a book and you're seeing someone <laughs> reading a book and you're like, and also it's like not the dumb thing, you know, you're not, you're not like those other girls, <laughs> you're reading a book. And I feel like that's very, in Jane, I do, because why is everyone so horrible? Like, because there are sort of figures throughout the book who are almost angelic. There's a very big sort of black and white thing going on. Where there are some people who are like super good not only super good but like literary hero good and then there are people who are just absolutely evil and and she has this binary going on throughout i think i was saying i was thinking about it in the context of how i accumulated all those female characters who both i related to um, who was it was just saying that as somebody who reads so you both relate to the characters but then they also form you so as a girl growing up repeatedly these female characters and, and and then as they grow up as well i feel like you also get influenced by them and want to be like that and and somehow when you read an adult you realize that somehow it's actually influenced how you've lived your life it, it, it has an impact on the choices you make um, in terms of what you want to be and 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 I don't know if it gives you a role model in terms of relationships uh, so yeah it's really interesting looking back as an adult to see those novels that you read as a teenager because in, in a sense it's it's not simply that she's an orphan it's like she like it's I think because you were saying the class because that also was very apparent to me it's like she's in this nebulous space she's related to them but she's like needy and poor and although that you know changes throughout the book and then as a governess she also has this incredibly nebulous space which I'm really interested to talk about because and that that very fact that she's sort of this in-between figure means that she gets to sort of be part of certain conversations but she's not actually part of you know and and it means that people and institutions can abuse her but she you know she sort of isn't entirely helpless in a way perhaps somebody in a workhouse perhaps in that particular way being in poverty and throughout she has actually she's quite cruel about poor people people that don't have manners and 
and, and she has and she, again it's that kind of black and white morality thing where she's like oh well they're poor that's it kind of thing and I thought that was quite difficult you know and not something that I remembered as well so, yeah yeah I was really struck by the child Jane Eyre's alertness to hierarchy um like she says I was met at the place by a person like a servant right which I'm not sure what that means someone whom she was profiling as looking like a servant, you know? But we also see that the people with the most complex characters, the non-black and white people are often servants, like Grace Poole, clearly servants. Bessie, Bessie is an interesting character. Um, Bessie is mostly good, clearly loves Jane Eyre, but also is fairly selfish, you know, does not stand up for this child, does not, in some ways protect her, in some ways doesn't. So, yeah, but the child Jane Eyre's alertness to hierarchy, as well as her awareness that she has been shaped by her subservient position, was what I found most interesting this mm. time around. Mm. Or even she notices that, I don't remember, Miss Miller looks like an under teacher, whereas Miss Temple looks like a leader, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. And that was, yeah, that was a bit... Uh, chilling to read for me at least to imagine this child who is really vividly portrayed and also in some ways as we were all seeing relatable right um looking at the world in this way yeah, yeah there's also the um the scene where she where she's uh she's sick after having been in the red room and the physician comes to see her He's not, not the proper doctor that the reeds get, but uh, the, like the local physician. And he says, he, he asks after her sort of well-being, doesn't he? And tries to dig a little bit deeper to understand what her situation is. And he asks her, if you had the choice to live with your relatives who might treat you kinder, would you like to go and live with them? And she's like, oh, no, I don't want to be poor. I'd rather be unloved then be poor and I think that's a really interesting right off right from the start of the novel to set that tone I think is very interesting but there is back to what Samaya there, said uh, sorry Aisha you go oh sorry I was just going to say there is some self-awareness in that as well because then eventually she the character experiences both destitution and like wealth right so I feel like that that section where she says like as a child, I thought being poor was the worst thing. Like there was some kind of like self-awareness of her own silliness. Yeah. Looking yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah, looking back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to um, read a quote out from that scene, Bakisa, that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind and then yeah. to learn to speak like them, to adopt their manners, to be uneducated, to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead. No, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it, it kind of does indicate also where, who the novel is written perhaps for, the kind of readership or where it's located. And it's not, it's not that poor people would be kind of outside of that realm of that world in a way um, but there is one point which where she does when she's um uh when she leaves and she's at school she does say that she would prefer the kind of harshness 
of that living environment to mm -hmm. the extravagance of her home. So she does, yeah. There is there is some change. I suppose, but then actually, when she goes and when she's governess um, at Thornfield, and Rochester is sort of making moves uh, to be married to Ingram, and it is very clearly uh, a, a move to gain social standing. She's very sympathetic um, towards them and that decision. She says something along the lines of that this is all they've known, this is what their class teaches them. Uh, so she has a very sympathetic eye. And I know Rochester is sort of the object of her affections, but... yeah. Again, it's it's a really complex novel because at one point she does say like, okay, like they they know no better and I can understand. But then later on in the novel, she says to him, like, I don't respect you for what you've done. Like she mm -hmm. actually tells him off. Like she says, I would have never done such a thing. Like mm -hmm. I would only be with someone for love and I can see that you don't love her. I, I also feel like there's another kind of economy going on, which is like, um, people that have deep interiors and I feel like that's like what really draws you know when the love interest stuff happens with Mr Rochester mm -hmm. they talk about it as like their relationship sits outside of so the social standard standards and that's and I feel that throughout she's constantly casting judgment on people not simply based upon their class but also the sense of I am a deep person I have a deep imagination and that's the well of like who I am is that thing and other people are not like that and 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 I and and the, that again it is tied to class because I think um Cara was saying Bessie is a simple person and therefore we have to be forgiving of her <laughs> so she also ties it to Christianity in this sense of you know those who that it's you know I guess in a sense that like God will look kindly upon people who are simple and so there's there's for that sense I mean, again, it's focusing on the first part of the novel. You know, she, it's, it's all there where she, she, the fact that she reads so much and even going into the Red Room and the Gothic stuff going on, the fantasies and the reading and the Gothic and the fantasies, that's like a huge part of how she imagines outside of her role as a governess later on as well. So, yeah. I think I'm connecting again to what I was saying earlier about... Um, the the kind of based these characters that are based on the writers but also those females who read these books and relate to those characters and that depth that you're talking about Samia I think it's really um significant because I think both the writers and I mean I think even us as readers have kind of we've kind of like thought about ourselves as being you know you, you can think of yourself as different and I think it's really interesting to think about it in terms of feminism, because I have been thinking about how women are represented and how there is this tradition of representing women um, um, as, you know, different from other women and what kind of, you know, feminism that is, because there, there have been these female writers who have seen themselves as different um, and superior from other women. And it it's been reflected in how they represent other women. Um, like I talked about, mentioned Pride and Prejudice earlier, but you see this a lot in Jane Austen's novels too as well. There's always that heroine who is um, deep and she's got a lively mind and she reads and she's somehow, you know, she's better than other women. 
Um, and it's also interesting to think, I think, I feel like it's even more stark in Jane Eyre because I think Aisha was saying earlier about um, her not being pretty. And I think that for me, it, I, I, I latched onto that because I thought um, it, it elevates the mind so much. Mm. And I think it, it, it must have contributed to this idea that I carried with me that I should be loved for my mind. Like, you know, my mind is what defines me. And, and as a woman, it, it, and as a female, it feels like such a significant thing that you can, mm -hmm. and that's what Jane is kind of embodies. And mm. it's more clear in the fact that she, you know, is not a beautiful uh, heroine. That, that resonates so much with me. And I just realised that Jane Eyre is like the ultimate, not like other girls, because she's definitely not like the wife in the attic. <laughs> like the ultimate, not like this woman in the attic, where, I mean, I'm going slightly ahead in the book, but, you know, the sense of I'm, I, I you know, I am not mad. I am not, I am not, um, you know, I may be plain, but I'm not this, this crazy. I'm not like this person who's irrational and, you know not quite white maybe and all of these other things and I think what you were saying about feminism I, I do definitely see that in this book the sense that because there is actually a very kind of famous track in there um, where she talks about women and how they should be able to um, they should be able to do what their brothers do you know if, if they are so inclined but even within that formulation if they are so inclined and if and it's like she has a specific idea of the good kind of woman is so the woman of intellect who is a good christian and those kinds of and pure like there's a whole thing about purity mm -hmm. i mean um i have to say this question of like her saying i'm not like i don't know if we're ready to go there yet or whether we should maybe but the, the thing of her saying like that she's not like the woman in the attic is that do you guys think that's what she's saying or do you think that there is a part of her that is the woman in the attic because I felt like there was quite a lot of sympathy for the woman in the attic I for feel like there's sympathy for everyone and that's what I like most about this novel even for Mrs. Reed even for all of these maybe not for people like Brocklehurst or whoever you know but she says at one point, to go back to Sumaya's and Kavita's point about interiority, she does imagine all sorts of people with all sorts of different kinds of interiority. And she says that's the big mistake that people like, you know, like oppressors like Mr. Brocklehurst um, get, that the big mistake that they make. That's what they get wrong. Like when he um, makes the tall girls or the girls with long hair turn and face the wall, um, she says clearly, there's a statement, oh, I realized that he did not understand because she could see their faces and he couldn't and their faces were defiant. And she says, um, he could not see that you, could, you can control people's bodies, but you cannot control their minds. It, mm -hmm. She puts it differently, let me see. Yeah, the insight was further beyond his interference than he could have imagined. And to me, that's the brilliant thing about this book. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, she says she's not like other women but maybe that's also because she's the speaker maybe it's simply that we get to see her interiority and that's the difference i don't know i feel like helen is such a great example of what you just said tara like the it's just like because she because it's it's like she's like the ultimate figure of her she's risen above her circumstance in jane's eyes because she 
is destitute and very sick but she's and and everyone thinks she's a slattern and you know she's really put upon by certain teachers but she has this internal fortitude that I think Jane then sort of internalizes herself and her character changes as you know as she becomes a student if that makes sense like before it's like she was just this ball of passion and meeting Helen and also Miss Temple perhaps as well seems to kind of refine it and go actually I can be passionate but I also need to direct that somewhere else perhaps. It's interesting like Helen's response to injustice as opposed to Jane's and how they have this kind of argument uh, over their responses and how Helen in so many ways like Samaya said does kind of soften or Helen says at one point to Jane something about um, how if she holds on to her resentment there's no possibility of forgiveness and this seems to affect Jane's journey with her relationship with Mrs. Reed but at the same time she feels that Helen's attitude is like kind of almost like a walking towards death you know where it's like a kind of surrender so the balance between fighting and submitting is something that she seems to be interested in. And I think maybe uh, the, the woman in the attic, Bertha, is also this woman who, for example, like burned the red room down, you know, who didn't faint, who actually burned the red, like what would have happened to Jane if she had let that fire like just burn? Yeah, it's interesting how Jane's rebellion is always so muted. Did I interrupt someone? Sorry. Um, and but Jane is not happy with the quietism of Helen's position. And although she might learn some elements of it, she does not accept it. And when she meets Helen, Helen's reading Rasselas, right? Which is really about how life is suffering and you better just embrace it. And I don't think it's an endorsement. I think it's an ironic placement of that book. And Helen, like everybody else, uh, says that Jane is not a good Christian, right? That because Jane resists, she is a heathen. And that's what everyone says about Jane throughout the book. They say she is worshipping Jagannath. They say she, uh, she might as well be because she's a liar. Um, Helen says, you sound like a heathen. I, yeah, I mean, I think this is also one of the beauties of the text that, that we don't find in contemporary texts is kind of like analysis and critique of religion from within. So Jane herself is a believer and has a very uh, strong and deep relationship with God. And she examines other people's hypocrisies and weaknesses, and like St. John, you know, who's like devoted his life to God. And she has respect for this, but also like great skepticism, right? Mm. And then Helen. But he gets the last word. Yeah. Go on. But he gets the last word. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's what I noticed this time around, and it really uh, unsettled me. I don't know what you all think, but yeah. I, um, I had a slightly different understanding of the dynamic between her and Helen. And I feel like... Um, so her and Helen, there is this interaction that they have. And yes, Jane says that she cannot accept or could never um, behave and adopt Helen's way. Yet she does seem, in my perspective, to accept Helen as her, 
as superior morally to herself. So here's a section where she disagrees with Helen, right? Mm -hmm. So Helen has this idea that um, only God can judge and everyone in their souls are pure, you know? So once we pass, we will all be pure and uh, we just have to bear our suffering. And then what she says to Helen is, um, she says, you are good to those who are good to you. But if people are always kind and obedient to those who are cruel and unjust, the wicked people would have it all their own way. They would never feel afraid and they would never alter and they would grow worse and worse. When we are struck at without a reason, we should strike back again very hard. I am sure we should so hard as to teach the person who struck us never to do it again. So I feel like this is a very strong kind of resistance to Helen's uh, worldview. And she also um, says at some point, like she feels very, very sad when Helen is like um, mm -hmm. talking about, she says it's very beautiful, but it also made me feel very sad. And she has a kind of premonition of Helen's death when mm -hmm. Helen speaks of her spirituality. Cool. But, but I can understand what um, the keys are saying, because I think that um, I would agree. And, and I feel like in, when uh, Jane says that, we find we are really like uh, captured by what Jane's saying. It seems very, you know, this resistance idea. Um, and I wonder if we're bringing that to it. Um, but I do also feel like as the friendship played out, there is, a, there is this sense of that she looks up to Helen. And and she sees her almost as an angel and somebody who's yeah morally superior. Um, yeah. So I, I think what the saying does does ring true to me. And but and I guess the question I would want to ask and what do you all think is because I feel like that question between their two positions is really key to the novel and how the novel plays out. Which of those two positions is the kind of core of you know where the, the novel is located like the story you know what how Jane's life plays out which of those two positions is it kind of taking I, I really feel like Helen wins um, out in the end <laughs> personally I don't think those are the only two positions though no um I don't was it um Pakiza maybe you were saying um I don't remember who was saying it earlier but there's the position of the of Bertha Mason in the attic, which is a very different one. It's a, a response we should not disregard, even though she's considered mad. There's the position of Miss Temple, who also resists, and she's there at Lowood with Helen and um, Jane. And that is neither Jane's uh, initial childish, uh, intense desire to revolt, right? Nor is it Helen's, uh, what I was calling a quietist uh, Christian position that the book seems to characterize as suicidal. Um, and Miss Temple is, she takes action and she does resist pretty firmly. And there are many other figures like that who provide other alternative responses to injustice. Now, I, I, I wanted to hear more from Pekiza about Mr. Rochester and why, what you thought about him on this new reading. For some reason, I, as a young person, that really, like, I really liked that. I really liked how Rochester was 
kind of gruff and not attractive but ultimately very loving um and now when i read it i'm just thinking wow toxic male like lies to her from the from the start <laughs> does whatever the hell he wants and uh she's still in the end there's this whole idea of of her of yeah she is subservient to him because she's in employment um but there is this whole idea that because she loves him she is dutiful and um that really plays a, a huge part you know even if you take the class element out of it she's because she loves him she will absorb all of that pain um and take it and reading it now i just think wow rochester like every move you make is really problematic <laughs> I was wondering whether one of the reasons young girls love Rochester so much and uh, Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights as well, and then older women don't. I, I was wondering whether one of the reasons is because Rochester reminds people of their dad. <laughs> it's like, Maybe. little girl, like be good to, like even the words he uses for her, like lamb and little. I and feel like that. I feel like for me, it's the, th oh, and I reread it. And I, I, I feel like I reread it a few years ago and I had the same feeling. I was like, oh my God, she's trying to fix him, run away. And like, yes. it's, it's that feeling of like, but like, there's obviously, the thing is, I, I feel like there's two things going on. On the one hand, it's this, where she's like, I'm going to fix you and you're going to be the guy of my dreams. And I feel like, so that's why I, because I, because when I was younger, I definitely had that feeling of, I'm going to find someone and they're going to be broken and then I'll fix them. <laughs> And now I'm like, okay, you have to know with your trauma. Go away and deal with that. And then that's not my job. Maybe. Yeah. And then um, it's not my job. And then later on, that's why when she runs away and then sort of comes back to such a key moment, right? Because then she's like, actually, I'm not going to try and fix you. You're really fucked up. You've got a wife in your attic, you know? But at the same time, I, it's not satisfying for me somehow because to me, it's like, it's such a. It's so, I don't know if I would let my child read this book, <laughs> like, it's to that extent, because he's so abusive, and it's so romanticised, yeah. and in a sense, the best part, like, the best part of the book is the messed up dynamic. On the mm. other hand, I feel a bit like they do have some kind of connection that's alluring, because they, they enjoy each other's company, and in, in such a way that I think is like, I don't know, it's alluring somehow, and I don't know why. I think also on top of the um, sh her potentially trying to fix him, there's the the whole sort of um, trope of this man who's trapped in this circumstance, but through no fault of his own is very much. He talks about like the hand that has been dealt to him as though he has no um, ownership of the things that he has had to do um life's been really difficult for him and he's very unhappy as a result of it and that only it's only jane that can make him happy it's really this idea of not even necessarily her trying to fix him but this huge sympathy that we have that of his potential i think there's a lot there's a lot around his potential isn't there in the text and how he has the potential to be an amazing person. And I think, um, again, that's a really problematic idea that uh, young women um, get stuck with, uh, which in real life has very damaging consequences. So <laughs> reading this novel, I was a bit like, Ooh, uncomfortable. 
Yeah, that moment when he says, I was your equal at 18 um, in one of their first conversations. And what he means is, I used to be good like you. Right mm -hmm. now you're above me because you're good and mm -hmm. I'm not. And he doesn't, of course, say the horrible thing that he's doing, that they're mm -hmm. living under. But um, he says that sort of move that he makes is quite appealing right mm -hmm. and she is drawn in by that that's clearly what attracts her because she continues to have this awareness of uh material inequality and how that shapes people mm -hmm. but um like she says he's she smiles to herself because he's forgetting that he's paying her whatever amount um mm -hmm. per year and so he can command her mm -hmm. and then she tells him okay i will do what you're saying uh not because you're paying me, which I just reminded you of, but because you forgot that you're paying me and therefore mm -hmm. can tell me what to do. And that yeah. is what draws her in. That's what attracts her. And the other thing is not to forget she's had a very, very sheltered, abusive uh, life up to now. And he's the first person, the first male for sure, who shows her any kind of interest um, and who makes her feel attractive um and i think there's a part in the in the novel where she says something about gratitude to him makes his face the best she likes to see so again there's this really uncomfortable dynamic there which doesn't feel very healthy um and and if that was anybody that i knew in real life those are the alarm bells that would start um ringing in my mind but in the novel somehow is so romanticized you kind of forget about that I mean I guess the reason that he she is attracted to him is his like his rough like his roughness is exactly what attracts her and his ugliness and she feels that if I were face to face with a, a good looking man I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do like she doesn't really have an interest and there's I mean you could argue that that's like kind of like trauma bonding or something but then you could also say that there's something about that like roughness and like skewedness that also becomes quite alluring because they can both have conversations on a level that literally like Mrs. Fairfax doesn't even understand, like it's a different language to her when they speak, you know? It's so um, witty and dark and also sexual and there's something special about it. So there's a section where she says, which I, I, I like this, she says, I knew the pleasure of vexing and soothing him by turns. It was one I chiefly delighted in. And a sure instinct always prevented me from going too far beyond the verge of provocation I never ventured. On the extreme brink, I liked well to try my skill. Retaining every minute form of respect, every propriety of my station, I could still meet him in argument without fear or uneasy restraint. This suited both him and me. So the idea that they have these deep and um, like conversations that are unconventional. Um, really, so, so I think I think what she's talking about is also like a kind of authenticity that goes beyond like social norms. And this is what brings them both to each other, right? I, 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 I yeah, I, I also read into it um, this, uh, that again, the, the idea of surrender and submission. And I, I do feel like there's a weird proto-BDSM thing going on between Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre, 
And I think it's like, it's easy for our, our modern sensibility. Although I do think 100% there is a lot of, it's abusive of some of the, especially because like she's 18, it's just weird. But I do think that there's a kind of transparency to the power dynamic that is, and, and, and that is very true to life in a way. I don't think I really read that in modern literature, that true to life aspect of it, like who has control who's in power in this moment and like again there's like a simmering sexuality there even though there's no like hardcore sex in the text if that makes sense that I think is true to life and there's and a sense of um and I think that is part of the romanticization but I still feel that it's real like it's real in a way if that makes sense I don't know hmm. I think it's I think it's real in the sense of what um women perhaps go through or what they experience but I feel like looking reading this book at this point um, um, as an older woman after having life experience and also also in the con political context of the conversations happening and me too I feel like you we read the novel very differently so I think that what you're saying is true, Sabia, that there's, you know, there's truth in it. But at the same time, I find myself questioning the, for example, the writer and how she's, you know, where she's coming from in terms of the relationship that's being constructed. And I couldn't help seeing it as a fantasy, this relationship to an extent, because we've been talking about the narrator and, and how as, you know, this female who is different, who is, you know, someone of the mind, being loved for your mind, being singled out um, by this and being seen by this man. And I guess I felt when I was reading it now, it's definitely not something I felt earlier, but it, there's something kind of artificial about the relationship, I think, I felt. And it happened so quickly and I felt like I was totally carried by it, reading it at a younger age. But now I think... What, what's going on here? Why is this, you know, happening so quickly? And then with um, Rochester, I felt very um, cynical about, about him, about how um, he's, I, I, I guess if we really unpack that abuse, how he's constantly telling her, not only is he emphasizing the age difference, um, but also how wretched she is and how poor she is and how, you know, in a way in insignificant she is. And that's something that, you know, is kind of as part of that abuse. Um, he, he brings up that relationship with that woman. Is it Celine, her name, the opera singer? Um, and this also seemed like such a classic trope to be like putting aside the, the wife in the attic, this thing of this broken man who loved this woman and had his heart broken. And it's I mean, it's just so familiar, isn't it? With, with and, and somebody who needs to be loved and taken care of, but constantly emphasizing that power dynamic as well and, and, and creating it. Um, and then there was a line actually, which I um, uh, noticed, which is uh, when he, she thinks that he's lost interest in her. And he said, she says, I had lost the sense of power over him. Um, and I feel like this is really important because um, I kind of think that the re a relationship like that between the two of them is based on the female thinking that she has power over a powerful man and it rests so much 
on that and that comes up again and again this kind of you know this and and, and I don't know what the rest of you think but I I wonder if there is this cynicism is there a cynicism in the novel about that or or is the author complicit in that um there, there were a couple of points where I thought maybe it is more complex like there's a point in which he says something about her eye color and um he says she's got brown eyes and she says actually I've got green eyes but <laughs> like you know she just lets that go um and then there's something about Miss Fairfax's warning her as well. And in the context of like the Me Too conversations these days and how we talk about like we're older women warning younger women, you know, about like watch out for these men and how dangerous they are. I felt like, you know, there are some layers in there. But is this so is this love or is this just an abusive relationship? I, I'm wary of sort of saying uh, you know, Mr. Rochester bad, Jane good, and just victim. I, I don't think of it in that way exactly because I think what I see between them is this weird thing to do with surrendering and him going, you will surrender to me and at some point, because, because I need you because you make me good and she's like at some point, well I can't surrender to you because the second I do I go to this, you know, Spain in this house all very because it's all very tied to colonialism and mastery I feel um it's second I do I am damned as well and and then and then no not and then neither of us will be good and there's this kind of logic going on constantly throughout their relationship and I think I think what I it's, it's weird because I this issue of whether Charlotte Bronte is complicit she was in love with someone she shouldn't have been in love with in real life um and, and, and so I think it is t absolutely a fantasy for her. Um, and I, I don't know, I think I agree with you, Keith, that he's redeemed. Um, but I hope that we all can find redemption, I guess. But I think it's interesting that she had to sort of find a fortune, kind of like with the, like the, the Pride and Prejudice, you know, she, you know, she sees the house and then she's like, okay, I'm in love with you. It's that moment of like, she had to find her fortune in this very weird way. Like imagine just, traveling around and then finding a house and this person you know, it's like so unbelievable and um yeah I think that there's it's it's very much like she had to she had to not only be she, not only did she have to go through that trial of traveling through this land running away and having this like be, being hungry and destitute she also had to socially move up and then, you know, not only was it good on a godly plane, but it was good in the material plane, and then it was okay. And that's what I found difficult to accept, if that makes sense, yeah. So it feels like, I mean, what, like this is just like conjecture in some ways from the information we have, but this idea that uh, the writer actually, uh, she married the missionary, right? Who had been proposing to her for years and years and eventually she relented and then she died in childbirth. That's Charlotte Bronte's story. And the idea, and before that she was governess in this household where she had uh, something with the, with the master of this household and that couldn't go anywhere. So the idea I had in my mind of this writer kind of recreating the situation where she does not have to kind of settle for the missionary and in a way like almost trying to save her own life through this writing because eventually you know, she succumbs to a different fate. So the, yeah, like... 
what, what needs to kind of transform energetically for this union to be possible? Like Mr. Rochester needs to be, he needs to lose everything and she needs to rise. And that's the only way. Um, I think from sort of a lot of the comments I've made so far, I've come across like very anti their relationship and anti Rochester. Um, I'm not, I actually do still like them as characters. I, I think I probably like Mr. Rochester more than Jane actually. Um, but I do feel that he, she has to do all, I feel like she does all the work. She has to do all the work, has to go through all the transformations. And then he's waiting for her at the end. And he's, you know, he has an accident, doesn't he? And that's not very nice, but he does regain his sight at the end. Um, <laughs> and while, meanwhile, she's like dying in a ditch somewhere. And then obviously everything comes good, but I just feel like she has to bear all the trials and tribulations. And, and that's her function as the good um of the pair and and him just being a dastardly uh, guy that he is he just sort of gets everything handed to him uh, <laughs> and I sort of felt a little bit um I, f I felt that that is quite unhelpful writing as opposed to not enjoying the story really enjoy the story I find it's unhelpful writing on the part of Bronte and just shows up some of the kind of um inequalities that are just that will have been so accepted at the time so yeah and and i the thing that i really have had an issue with coming back to this text um maybe like 15 years after i first read it at 15 i found it all very um heady like very much it didn't feel lived at all. I, I sort of got the sense that Bronte didn't have a lot of lived experience. Everything was an ideal. Um, and that really comes through in the text. It doesn't feel very realistic or, or authentic even in some ways. I think that poetically their relationship is very beautiful. But if we try and give it any kind of place in reality, it, it becomes very problematic. That's how I feel about it. Shall we talk about um, the colonial aspect and Bertha? Um, because I know, Kizzy, you mentioned it briefly, didn't you? Yeah, I think just in um, one thing that also really struck me is how she describes people's appearance, and that is very much linked to the judgments she passes on their character. And it's probably a kind of oh, context yeah. of the time. Um, like but, the head, know, somebody's forehead. It's all in the forehead. It's like physio. It's like it had that word physio. Phrenology. Yeah, that that was I was that was really struck me. Like you know, yeah. she was like studying his countenance. Like <laughs> clearly not a generous man. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and people read her like that too, right? It's her countenance that speaks for yeah. her with yeah. Helen and Miss Temple and they say oh what Brocklehurst said is definitely wrong because we can see that you're honest from yeah. your clear forehead or whatever. Yeah and she uses it as a novelist in such an interesting way and with Bertha in particular I was really transfixed by the way she did like really she's really thinking about like the colour you know how widely spaced her eye, her hair everything she was it's, I think it really that's how she you know well, obviously she believes in it but it's a sense of um the otherness really came out through that that mm -hmm. science so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
yeah i think just the, the way in, in which she describes bertha um when she uh i think on the eve of their wedding or perhaps the night before rochester's rochester comes back um bertha comes into her room she's never seen her before and the description is like really racist um <laughs> But well, I'm actually not, not racist, but just monstrous, right? Her features are, are monstrous. Um, I think her features, she describes them uh, as uh, the skin being purple and the features swollen. And um, it, she's monstrous. I think she describes her as a beast um, on more than one occasion. And I just thought that was like so problematic because that's the that's the only way that we see her is very dehumanized um but without even touching on race if that makes sense she doesn't really touch on race at all does she or they don't talk about those people from that country it's just in in the physical description which makes these this difference so horrific um, yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that she, you know, I mean, let's be like really, Mr. Rochester is a plantation owner. <laughs> and, um, and he and, and Bertha, her race is ambiguous. And that's obviously why um, Jean Reese wrote White Sagasso Sea, because there's a sense of she's Creole. So yeah. perhaps she's not she's white, but she's not quite white, you know, there's a there's a kind of something going on there. And I think the it made me think a lot about Edward Said's um, Orientalism, just the sense of it's at the, it's at the peripheries of the text, but actually that's all that the text is about. Yeah. And um, it remi- also remind me of what you're saying, Pekita, about this idea that um, it's, a, it's in the mind, it's very idealised. And it's actually the whole infrastructure of the novel, I feel, was really resting on this, again, the idea of mastery and surrender. And like, the fact is we all just have to submit to our faith. And, and I was thinking about this in terms of who is enslaved. What, what does this book rest upon for this book to exist? And so, of course, there's the, the, the women and their labour, which is very, there's a lot about women and labour in this book. But then there's also the invisible labour, the really invisible labour, where which is basically this whole estate, all of the so- hierarchy, the creation of the middle class, all of that, you know, it's all right there in front of you. And, and clearly Charlotte Bronte is sort of grappling, you know, with these, with these ideas within her own context, which is very small. But there are these global things going on at the same time. Like even her, her family and how they got their wealth, oh, Jane Eyre, rather, how they got their... I don't know, it's all, it's all very there, basically. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I felt like the indications, I guess you're right that racism spelled out overtly, but it's very, it's very much there. The, the West Indian planter who is the father and then him going to Jamaica and the hidden identity of the mother like they're hiding the mother so I feel like the idea is that the mother is the person who is of color mm-hmm. um, he does use the word uh, he says um, pygmy intellect and giant propensities um, he says I found her I mean this is what makes me wonder like was was she mad mad to begin with? He says, I found her nature wholly alien to mine, her taste obnoxious to me, her cast of mind common, low, narrow, and singularly incapable of being led to anything higher. 
So this idea of someone being from a very different culture and potentially just not being understandable to him, you know? And then what happens is a doctor discovers that he, she is mad. And this makes him lock her up. And that is when the, like, the screaming and things like that uh, so he says, since the medical men had pronounced her mad, she had, of course, been shut up. Like, it's such a, a, a cruel uh, story. And it's, uh, uh, it seems almost as if this identity of the mother, this mother that had been hidden from, from him is having an impact on his, uh, his view of this woman. Um, yeah. So, so I really found, sorry. Sorry. So yeah, he finds out after the honeymoon that mm-hmm. her, her mother's actually alive. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned something at the start, Aisha, in terms of whether there is a sympathy to be had for uh, Bertha. I really didn't find that she was presented. I, I mean, I can sympathize with her as a reader, but I didn't find that she was presented as sympathetic um, by Bronte. Really, I didn't get that. I going back to Sumaya mentioning Orientalism, it really feels like she's, you know, the shadow, like the shadow figure, everything that's wrong, everything that is kind of holding back Jane and Rochester from, from being happy. In, and in some way there's like religion comes into that, you know, she's a heathen, the, the barbarian, and they are the good Christians. Um, and there's this this like really um, problematic kind of reflecting or acting as a foil for for all the things that are good about Jane. You know, Jane is white as a lily, and she's very moralistic. She's very religious, and uh, she's very rational, isn't she? I mean, there's a scene where Rochester comes dressed as a gypsy woman, and she's she's being very kind of um, rational and saying oh well I'm not foolish I don't believe in this so all of those things which are stable and good I feel are Jane and and she only appears more so because of the existence of Bertha is how I how I experienced it I I I didn't I didn't think so like Mm -hmm. so so I'll give you some examples right Mm -hmm. the first time that she hears uh, Bertha laugh she says that it it thrilled her and she Mm -hmm. likens um Rochester to being like this being like even though she doesn't know what it is she makes a comment about this being like Bluebeard's castle like Bluebeard was someone who locked Mm. up his life and and then um, Mrs. Fairfax says that Rochester is of a violent race so I think there are like comments here about some kind of subjugation Um, the second time she hears the scream she's talking about the confinement of women so this is page 95 and she's it's it's that famous passage where she says human beings cannot be satisfied with tranquility and women suffer from too rigid a restraint to absolute stagnation and this is when she hears the second scream um and one more section is when she says, uh, uh, she still doesn't know what this is. And she says, what crime was this that lived incarnate in this sequestered mansion? So I feel like she does see Bertha as Rochester's crime. And obviously, like, she, de- she, she defends Bertha in the end. Like, she doesn't marry him. And she, she says, uh, 
we, we cannot ignore this woman. Like we cannot pretend that she does not exist. I think. I, think there's a- I, I feel like... I feel like a kind of psychoanalytic, I mean, I will know more about this than I do, but a psychoanalytic, it's, it's, the, it's the unconscious of the text, isn't it? So even if conscious, because I think I feel like I'm exactly between Bikiza and Aisha, where I'm like, yeah. I, I, I genuinely do think that Charlotte was, it was portraying her as just this abject other. But at the same time, I think there's something else that is unconsciously going on in the text, where, you know, really Jaina is the monster and she suspects it of herself on, on some level and the and and the unconscious of the text like I feel like there's this aspect of like the history which is right there on the surface but all deep buried underground and this sense that you know that her passion the too muchness of of, of what Jaina because again she's just too too passionate just too much she she worries about herself that she is the monster right and that, that's that's how I and and, the, and this idea that if you just go a bit too far, you will be the mad woman. In the, and and I don't know, I feel like that's how I uh, interpreted it. Yeah, uh, I think that they're all, I mean, at risk of becoming other in this way, um, as you're saying. I mean, uh, both Rochester and Jane at different points are described in terms of another kind of racial otherness, right? I mean, Rochester makes racist jokes about the Africanness, right, of um, Bertha saying she looks like the ladies of Carthage must have that kind of thing. Um, but Jane throughout is, as I said earlier, described uh, as we first meet her, she's seated like a Turk, right? She later um, is called a little heathen and they say she uh, might as well be uh, saying her prayers to Juggernaut, um, things like that. Rochester is described as, like when, especially when she sees him, but there are a couple moments like this, when she watches them all playing dress up and uh, dressing in these oriental costumes. She says his dark features uh, suited, he's, he's dressed like a painem and his dark features suited it perfectly. You know, she says he looks convincing. And so I think everyone is at risk of falling into otherness yeah. in that way. And Bertha is like the warning, isn't yeah. she? Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. That's really interesting. It's such a weird book. I had, yeah. I oh really had no right. <laughs> Like you know, you know that bit when the the gypsy scene. I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> like the idea of someone being like, "Oh, I've got a great idea!" <laughs> like while the party's going on, I'm going to sneak out, get in disguise, and tell people. Like, what's the perspective of someone? You know, I'm going to make you super jealous. Like, <laughs> so I sort of loved that. I thought that was like the fun side of Rochester. Bit <laughs> 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 <Stay> mad. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like this is also where my thinking was going with this whole idea of the younger people reading this novel relating to Mr. Rochester as his father. And then the journey we make in killing the father. So the idea that she ends up in this place where she becomes her own parent mm-hmm. and then she is able to approach a man on an equal. And many of us don't, like many of us do end up with men. When you say approach, yeah. Because I felt like in the end, though, it shows the love to be true. 
No. But it's, I feel like it's a difference. It's two completely different people, right? It's a different Mr. Rochester and a different Jane who meet at the end. Mm -hmm. So. But it's still a kind of like, it's still just kind of saying that the love between them was always true, even if they couldn't be together. Um, and there needs to be this new situation. Um, I, and I guess it is a love story in the end. Yeah, it's almost like fate and destiny and all of those things bend for them, right? And she hears him kind of calling her name on the wind and it's very like um, love conquers all in the end. She says at one point... Um, uh, about this, his dependence, she said, "It's as if a royal eagle. Sorry, it's it's as if a royal eagle chained to a perch should be forced to entreat a sparrow to become its purveyor. So, because the royal eagle has been damaged, it now needs the sparrow. So, yeah, there is this idea of, uh, hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it's a happy ending at all. Hmm." I mean, what I liked about, um, I liked her like leaving St. John and I liked St. John as this yes. idea of, again, like I related to it from a cultural perspective, men who like distort the scripture in order to control women, you know, mm -hmm. I thought it was so yeah. good, this, this thing that happens. Um, but, but yeah, I wonder. I, I felt like she was happiest with the two girls and there's like a homoerotic thing going on there. <laughs> like, I really felt like she was, you know, um, Sinjin's sisters. I felt like they had like sisterhood down and like they, 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 you know, they were of similar social status. So I felt like Jane was the most comfortable there and she could be, she could be useful, which is what she likes as a character, you know, she wants to teach. And I felt like he kind of effed that up a bit for her because, and, and he effed up his own life as well. Like you're in love with someone, just do that thing. Do you know what I mean? Nothing's stopping you. It's not like, God, you know, it's, it's, all, it's allowed, just do it. And he was like this deep, deep level of self-denial, which he ultimately rejects. Yeah. But like, I felt like there was like a, there's like there's a whole story there where Jane just stays with these two women and they have a polyamorous lesbian relationship or something. And I feel like that's like the happy ending and her returning to <laughs> I felt like was a bit. I thought it was a deflating ending. Whereas when I was fifteen or sixteen or whatever, I felt like it was like oh, nice. It's all come together, and it's yeah. I don't know. That was my uh, that's my rewriting. Yeah, I like that rewriting. <laughs> I like that. She is happiest with the sisters, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Cool. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, I think we might end there. Uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, see you at the next one. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.